I think it's it's a combination of these detailed models and these simple models that really gives sort of like a because the detailed models are maybe are needed to maybe make sure to make contact with experiments, hmm. and uh, but they are not alone, not sufficient alone to give you that 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 insight. It's not like you can sort of just look at these traces and say, oh, there's a Higgs boson. You have to simulate the whole experiment. <coughs> you have to do the measurement physics. And that's, so it's just like a separate thing. And that sort of this measurement physics has been sort of, I think, underdeveloped in, in, uh, in computational neuroscience. I think actually when it comes to simulations like, uh, like, like our kinds of studies, a quantitative, a huge, a quantitative difference would make a qualitative difference in terms of what we could explore. That's so the hope, that's, anyway, uh, right? Yeah, that's the hope. This is Brain Inspired. Hello, everyone. I'm Paul. So on the last episode, I had Noah Hutton on to talk about his documentary film In Silico, which chronicles Henry Markram's uh, quest to simulate a human brain under the project names The Blue Brain Project and The Human Brain Project. By coincidence, as you'll hear, uh, today I have Gauta Einvall on the podcast. Gauta is a professor at the University of Oslo and Norwegian University of Life Sciences, and he happens to have been part of the Human Brain Project since its inception in 2013. Gauta focuses on what he calls measurement physics uh, in biologically realistic simulations of neural networks. His goal in the simulations is to faithfully predict or recreate the various types of signals that neuroscientists measure in real brains. Signals like spikes and local field potentials, EEG and MEG. As you probably know, one of the grand uh, achievements in neuroscience is the famous work by Hodgkin and Huxley in the 1950s, working out the dynamics uh, equations that govern the activity of single neurons, which uh, has led to tons of productive neuroscience. As Gauta points out, uh, we still haven't had the same success simulating networks of neurons, and his hope is that by doing so, we can use the simulation models as tools to better understand networks of neurons across multiple scales and levels of biological detail, and to test hypotheses then about these networks. So we discuss all of that and more, and you can learn more about Gauta and his work uh, in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 148, where you can also learn how to support this here podcast to get all the full episodes and to join our Discord community, or to take my online course, NeuroAI, the quest to explain intelligence, which is all about the intersection of neuroscience and current AI. Okay, without further ado, here's Gauta. So Gauta, the, the genesis for our conversation today uh, was an email that you uh, sent in response to a conversation I had with Karina Kurto uh, about mm. the difference between beautiful and quote-unquote ugly <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> models. Um, and I, I feel like bad it. for her because she. this is like a two-page thing that she wrote uh, a while ago mm. in response to what yeah. neuroscience needs. She was asked to write this. Yeah. And and I, yeah. she, she kind of backtracked also on the ugly part mm. because, yeah. uh, and you know, mm. and, and you in your email called them 
messy, which, you know, was a, a messy yeah. kinds of models. So yeah, that's uh, yeah. I mean, for first, I should say it, it was a quite friendly email. It was very, friendly, a, very friendly, yeah. very friendly email. So this is sort of a, and I, it's, I sort of understand what is meant by, and especially these beautiful models, because uh, I think she had this, this nice example of the Hopfield network which mm -hmm. is clearly a beautiful model. It's sort of quite easy to write down. It has some beautiful mathematical properties and it tells you something about the, uh, yeah, about the, I mean, uh, well, you get some intuition about it. I actually asked, I was at the, one of my first meetings I attended in neuroscience there when I was, um, was in, was just after I switched to neuroscience from, from condensed matter physics. So John Hoffield was there. This was in Sweden. So I asked him about the role. What, what role his, his model would have. And he's, he said it might be a metaphor for how the brain works or, or how memory works. And, and that was a very nice. That's, what, that's, of course, what it could be. So I think we all agree that this was a very useful model and it's certainly beautiful also. And then, then you have this other extreme where you have this, um, this okay, say complex, complicated models or, or messy <laughs> models. And, uh, so okay. I guess the most... Uh, Value neutral thing is to say complicated models, but uh, I'm not very so ugly is, is sort of ugly has a that. yeah, it's a negative connotation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's sort of I think we all agree that it is uh, in some sense ugly compared to the beautiful models uh, because they have so many more uh, parameters are much, much more difficult to understand. And in, in the physics, some people sort of call this kind of model as like uh, uh, what's called number crunching and then doing mm. so like doing this kind of modeling just for number crunching and they sort of look down at some theoretical chemist for sometimes doing this kind of what they call number crunching so uh, so so but i think it's uh obviously this this uh these ugly models have i think have an important role to play oh, uh, i hope you think that together with it hmm? i would hope that what? you think that given given your work <laughs> yeah Exactly. And it's not because I think they are, have some special interest that they particularly, uh, well, ever less, uh, find them less ugly than other people do. But it's just that I think this is an important type of model we need in order to make, uh, make progress. Yeah. So, so the other thing that was kind of fortunate, and, and we're going to talk about some of your complicated models and the approach. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that was uh, fortunate is that I, just this last episode, I interviewed Noah Hutton, who made this movie, yeah. uh, this documentary in Silico about the Human Brain Project, um, mm. yeah. by which you received some, at least some of your uh, funding. And you, you've mm. been in, involved with the Human Brain Project since its inception. So uh, you got mm. to see the film also, and we don't need to talk about it for long, but I'm just curious mm. about your uh, reactions to the film, which you were not in, by the way. No, no. So, uh, so that's right. I've been in the Human Brain Project, uh, still in the Human Brain Project since its start in, in 2013. And I think it was an uh, uh, interesting movie. And, and, and certainly uh, Markram himself is a very interesting uh, character. Yeah. So, um, so I, I think it was, and I also heard your uh, your podcast, your live uh, podcast or a right. podcast with audience. That was very one, yeah, was I a nice to share discussion. That and, uh, yeah. yeah, so that was very nice. And um, and I think Noah came uh, came across as a very reasonable person. So, so, so I guess my my only if you say criticism is that is of the movie is that it sort of it didn't take the grasp at opportunity to clear up the difference between the blue brain project and the human brain project because right. that well, is he, um, yeah 
Yeah. Go ahead. So he, he mentioned it a little bit in, in the movie, but he, he sort of says that sort of that, uh, because these are very different projects and these, some of these more, you say, grandiose claims of, of, of Markram has to do with the Blue Brain project. If you look at the goal of the, so the Blue Brain project started, I guess, around 2005 and it had, Markram had this, this TED talk in 2009. Uh, and then this, um, then the Human Brain Project started in 2013. And this was not the continuation of the Blue Brain Project. It was, they had a different goal. It was about really about making the infrastructure or making sort of, making it possible to simulate large scale hmm. networks on the computers and make this available for the community. And, and that was one of the goals. There were also other goals of the project. So, and, uh, but, but this has sort of in, often people have criticized the Human Brain Project. And, and held it to the goals of the Blue Brain project. And that mm. has been sort of a, and that I think, uh, that, 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 that in silico didn't really take the opportunity to, to take advantage of the possibility to actually clear that up. Because I think much of the criticism and this petition that was signed against the human brain project was based on people who, who mix it up with the Blue Brain project. Mm. So, and it, and this was, so there was also a, well, now I'm a little bit because this is a sore point for us human brain projectors that it was also a, a, a critique in the, I think, Atlantic, a paper, uh, an article there. Ed Young, uh, I think. We also did, yeah, exactly, Ed Young, who yeah. did this, mixed it up in the same, in the mm. same way. So, um, and the human brain project is still running. I, that, I mean, that is, uh, I mean, as also was said in, in the movie, but the goal is, is, is quite different. The goal is actually to, now one of the goals that I'm, we are very busy <laughs> working on is to, contribute to make this sort of like this, what is it like the com this computer, in, in, with this infrastructure for doing large scale simulations so that people can actually be able to, to do this kind of simulations without having access to a supercomputer by themselves or, or, and also go, so it's some sense democratizing, uh, simulation science is that if you have a laptop computer somewhere, you should be able to sort of go in and, and run these large scale models and do research on them. Uh, on, I mean, using these sort of like supercomputers at different places in, in Italy, Spain, Germany, and, and France, and so on. So that is really the goal. And that's this, this kind of tools are now collected under this umbrella eBrains, uh, which then mm -hmm. we hope the plan is that this will certainly continue beyond 2023. So I really hope that this will both be successful in the sense that it's, in the sense that it's going to be easy to use and also that we're going to get user to, to, at least the, the people who want to do this kind of large-scale simulations, uh, that that they were able to find this useful and 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 use it. I think it's going to be. So it's more about the tool than the than the model in some sense. So so the Human Brain Project ends in 2023, but but you think that the funding will stay strong to continue these types of large-scale simulation projects? I I don't really know. I mean, we're actually uh, we are applying now for a, a much much smaller project. Sort of to just maintain, uh, maintain and, and sort of like develop and, and make it like it smooth this, like the use of these tools that's been developed as part of the human brain project. So we're literally writing a proposal now to the mm. EU to, to, and hopefully that will, but that would just be a small fraction of the, of the, of like the funding for the human brain project. Do you think that what effect, if at all, do you think that that documentary could have on the future funding of of uh, your 
flavor of science? Yeah, I don't know. I think it would have been <laughs> really helpful if this mis this misunderstanding mm-hmm. had been sort of cleared up. Uh, I think that has been uh, because this uh, obviously this thing of this whole reaction to the human brain project has sort of certainly hurt neuroscience. I think because I mean I think this this yeah I think that's yeah. Uh, do do you think some of the reaction uh, st- simply stems from jealousy, perhaps envy? I don't know. I think it's also that somehow this this strong, strong claims that that maybe uh, Marker made uh, sort uh, of rub people the wrong way, and I yeah. I sort of uh, also I also didn't sort of I believed I agreed partially with uh, like with his vision, but not not completely. But it wasn't really that. I mean, I just, I mean, it's in some sense, it was a lot of money, right? But it was all spread on like hundreds of labs. So we had, yeah. I think I had all two or three people working uh, in, in the group because of this. So it was sort of was like an R01. So it was, or whatever, I mean, like a rather modest. So, uh, but obviously, I think it's, it's this, you see this, I think the neuroscience community, you see all this money and it's, it's a big sum. And it goes to a sort of a, another type of of neuroscience, and then maybe don't sort of, even though it was an IT project. So, so uh, I don't know. It, it was obviously there's always some worries. I think everybody, especially in neuroscience, where there's so many approaches to neuroscience these days. So uh, I think, of course, uh, the approach I do is very promising. So I should get the <laughs> get sufficient funding, and I everyone I guess everyone in neuro, neuroscience is doing. Is, is feeling like this, so I guess there's always, I guess also, also this worry about getting, getting sure. funded for your own approach. Yeah, but mm. last question about this, and then you know we mm. can move on to more uh, fruitful topics. But no, have no. you personally received, um, you know, pushback from the community, like any part of the community, or do you feel mm. supported within the neuroscience community, or what's the general feeling you have? Mm. No, I, I, I certainly hasn't been a, a particular pushback. I also been a little bit on the, never been in the leadership of the Human Brain Project, and, yeah. and I think sort of. Yeah. Right. So I've been a little bit on the, on the periphery. I, I worry, uh, however, maybe that this, that I mean, some of this, this some of these more grandiose claims, maybe that was people got the impression from, from, from maybe from like presentation of the Blue Brain Project is that if you sort of just make a very complicated model and put a bunch of like detailed neuron models in, in, in a network and simulate on a supercomputer, then voila, you sort of the spirit voila. comes out of the bottle. <laughs> uh, if that is sort of like this very naive thing that uh, I don't think anybody believed, at least sort of not, uh, not anyone I know, not anybody I know. I mean, this, this kind of, if you have such a model, it's sort of like a starting point for doing research. It's not the end of it. And it's, uh, so there's all these unknown parameters, which is also pointed out uh, by by like some some of you know, the people who were interviewed in in silico, which I think is a very very good point that you don't know the parameters. But this the way to find the parameters is to build sort of what I call a skeleton model, and then sort of use that to sort of try to to compare with data and so on. But it's not the so anyway. So I think sometimes when you present this and maybe a, apply for money, people have this sort of conception of that we have this naive vision that if you just put to make a very messy model. And it looks sort of realistic that it somehow it's going to act realistically. And I think right. that sort of is, that's not common. That's not how it works. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, so you uh, detail 
Well, in this review paper, the scientific case for brain simulations, which was a 2019 review paper, I believe, mm. um, you yes. you talk about this approach and uh, why it's supported, and also, uh, like you alluded to before, that it's going to take uh, a lot of oh, different fine. labs, a lot of different people working on it, spread out. Uh, and, the, and that yeah. we have the capabilities of, of doing that these days with supercomputers that you can send your data off to and it runs on a supercomputer yeah. in some other country yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, so maybe, uh, maybe you can just kind of give an overview of what your approach is and then yeah. why. So, it, so it's, it's cool that you, <laughs> you think it's important to, for these uh, models to be able to predict not only spiking activity, but local field mm. potentials, EEG mm. signals, uh, fMRI, and these all come with their own um, mm. challenges, of course. Mm. But maybe you can kind yeah. of broadly overview what, yeah, what you're I, I doing. Think that, and I think the, the, the overall approach, I think, is is very similar to like the approach of Hodgkin and Huxley uh, mm -hmm. when they when they modeled, uh, the, I mean, a, a neuron or actually a piece of the neuron, the axon. So they just looked at it as a, as a physical system, right? They made a, a model for the, the axon and, and, and then they, they use all kinds of uh, clever experiments uh, to sort of to, to design this model and determine parameters and, and, and run it on computer eventually, right? So but they, did, we, they didn't have a computer, right? So they, they had no. to do this gut-wrenching gut <laughs> hand calculations. Uh, no, that was extremely impressive in, in so <laughs> many, uh, along so many different axes. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, so now after that, we now have a pretty good way, well, pretty good idea about how to model single neurons, right? Mm -hmm. we, we have, at least we have this cable equation, you have this, what's called multi, you can do this reconstructed morphology with dendrites and so on. So we can make sort of like the, the structure, we know the dendrites and we can make mathematical models. Uh, we have the mathematical framework. What is hard though, is to find the parameters uh, what sort of uh, ion channel densities should you put in the soma? Is it IH? Is it more along the like apical dendrite and the basal? All these 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 choices, right? So so then you have to to sort of to to uh, you do as many measurements as you can in some sense. Often this this patch patch electrodes, uh, and now people are also starting to use extracellular recordings if you have these neurons on the, on like this microelectrodes arrays and so on. Mm -hmm. And then you have all this experimental data, and then you sort of fit the model parameters to sort of to to make this neuron model that you make predict uh, well as accurately as possible uh, these uh, like the, the behavior of this well the make the model behave as similar as as what you see in experiments. And there's mm -hmm. many types of experiments and so on. And already there you have this this problem that. Uh, uh, this problem that it's not a unique solution. It's not, right. it's not like it's a one set of parameters that sort of, uh, uh, so that sort of this gives the uniquely best fit. And I think already in there was this one, one model that we use a lot was in the, so we call it the Hay model because the first author was Itai Hay. It was like from 2011. I think it was in a group of Idan Segev. So there they had like this, this beautifully multi-compartment detailed neural model. But they and they had one sort of like one sort of examples parameter set they used throughout the paper, or a couple of them, but they also gave up five hundred other parameter sets which did equally well. So that already uh, sort of uh, like this this thing that uh, about model solution degeneracy, which is another thing to discuss. But we are essentially trying to do the same 
thing for a network. Because if you look at network studies, uh, especially in the cortex, there are no examples that I know of, of like a piece of cortex for a particular biological system that has been like made so that you can sort of essentially the, the, this network model can mimic a bunch of different experiments. Hmm. Uh, and and we are now working with uh, collaborators at the Allen Institute, uh, particularly Anton Arkipov and and Christoph Koch, uh, on on sort of to, to as you know they have done a lot of well the Allen Institute has focused a lot on the mouse visual cortex over the last decade and mapped out all kinds of mapped out all kinds of things and also then made this like first version of a network model. Uh, so then, <coughs> so then, uh, but then, of course, how do you constrain this? How do you constrain this? How do you, how do you determine the parameters of this model? And that's that's a huge challenge. But again, you have to use use uh, all ex- well, experiments, not only spikes, but but also other experiments. So that's in, in fitting these these complex models, these ugly models to experiments, you need to take advantage of all experiments available. Uh, and uh, so that is sort of where you. But that was the same thing with if you look at Hodgkin and Huxley, they did all kinds of different manipulations with patch clamping, right. no, with space clamping, and, and and so they did all kinds of manipulations to get a rich sort of set of experiments, and uh, so which they used. So as so I say, it's very much the same same spirit as as Hodgkin and Huxley. Yeah, well, maybe we we should talk about the degeneracy. Uh, so I had Eve Martyr, and she's you know become this famous figure in neuroscience showing that there are a thousand different ways to skin a cat in the mm-hmm. stomatogastric ganglion yeah. of lobsters and crabs. Um, so how, you know, and I know that you see the, and, you know, rightly so, see the de- degeneracy as uh, a feature and not a bug mm. of the system. Yeah. But how much exactly. do you worry that it's going, that it has, um, that it will have an impact on the, uh, I guess, the relevance of the brain simulations that you perform. Now, this is uh, this is uh, this is a major worry, of course. So then you have to do this this thing that you you, you sort of say you, you fit your model to one type one type of data. For example, when it comes to when it comes to like this this mouse visual cortex model that has been developed at Allen Institute, they have uh, they have all these beautiful experiments where they. Show these different kinds of of, uh, of of like images and and movies and spots and whatever visual stimuli to the mouse, and so you can sort of sometimes fit the model to to data for one type of experiments and then test it on others, and so mm-hmm. on. But I, I think also it's an important thing to what what does this degeneracy mean? Because I think I mean obviously this wonderful podcast. By the way, I'm a, I'm a oh, big fan. You. I think you're doing a good service to the to the field. By, so by the I'm, way, uh, I, I should say I should we should plug your podcast, uh, Sense and Science, yeah. right? So it's largely yeah. in. But, but, uh, go so, ahead, yeah, in Norwegian. Yeah, no, so that's true. So I have this, this, this Norwegian. Essentially, uh, it's it's a podcast where most of the episodes are in Norwegian, but there are some of them uh, are made in English. I think it's four or five or something, uh, yeah. and with uh, with some neuroscientists. And that's called it's it's found on the Sense and Science. So that's. Uh, and mm, you you got true. Terry Sanowski to laugh a lot more than I did, so nice job. It was he, he was he was <laughs> yes. generous with the laughter. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> yeah, so that's true. So Terry Sanowski is there, and uh, and uh, and and Christoph Koch is there, and uh, 
I also had Sean Carroll. He's not a neuroscientist, but he's, uh, I think he's a wonderful podcaster. So I really mm-hmm. like, I sort of, uh, I'm only a Patreon subscriber. Two podcasts is yours and his. So that's, oh uh, man, my heart, yeah. my yeah. heart is a flutter. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. And I, and I actually tell my students sort of to, well, li- listen to this podcast because it's, I mean, following up, well, even in, in reading papers within your own field is quite sort of like, as you know, quite challenging, but you sort mm-hmm. of, Having listened to a like one hour, two hour podcast where you interview someone, so like from a, like in like in especially this AI thing, which is a little bit like adjacent to what I, I do, but not certainly not interested in it. We're and gonna, so we're gonna come back to that. Yeah, yeah. So this is sort of a, so this is it's been very useful for me just to stay oriented uh, in the field. But what I was saying is that if you look at this um, this deep deep network, say the the ones that can be the normal deep sort of convolutional networks that mm-hmm. can be used for uh, like image recognition. If you sort of train, say if you took like two identical uh, identical networks or like uh, to start off with, and then you train that, but maybe with a different uh, initial conditions or maybe with a different order of images or something. Yeah. Then you will end up with two networks which are probably behaving the same way. And performing the same way and both are sort of hopefully then successful. But if you go into the detailed parameters and you look at the synaptic connections or the connections, right? They will be different. Yeah. So in some sense, it's, it's, uh, this just tells that at, at it's not the detailed connections that matter. It's some kind of more like uh, some kind of more kind of average thing in the, in the connection, whatever, some other measure of the connection that matters. And so that's also not a unique solution. So I think this thing of, of looking for a unique solution is something we're so used to because that's typically how we made our models. We want to make them sort of low dimensional, I guess what to call, so that you have few parameters and uh, a <laughs> uh, few parameters. And then you sort of try to find this sort of set the parameters so that it sometimes gives the most like uh, suitable behavior. But, uh, but that's just like, that's a special case. And even if, even if you looked at uh, like the Hodgkin and Huxley, if they instead of fitting uh, ion channel densities, if they started sort of to fit sort of positions of individual ion channels, Jesus, then you would end up with the same kind of degeneracy of solution. So so this degeneracy is just a, that's the it just has to do with how the resolution we use when we model. Well, and of course, you know your brain and my brain, uh, we both can speak English, and your English is probably mm-hmm. better than mine because you know. Uh, multilingual and you know, just, you're just bright. Yeah. But, uh, you know, of course, yeah. our brains are not parameterized the ex- exact same way, nor is the structure exactly. the exact same way, etc. Exactly. Um, but, yeah. you know, y- you mentioning convolutional neural networks. So the hope is that you can extract some principle uh, mm-hmm. out of, you know, how it, it's doing what it's doing. And in the case of convolutional mm-hmm. neural networks, those principles are, well, you need multiple layers, you need the convolutions yeah. and and mm-hmm. the, uh, to, to form abstractions. So, yeah. um I don't know if you want to say, so I, I guess I just wanted to um, throw that out there to you. And, you know, how do you think about extracting, I guess, abstract principles from these detailed model simulations mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in, in the yeah, face so, of degeneracy? So, yeah. So that's, that's uh, obviously, I, mean, I think the first, okay, so the first step is trying to find this very complicated model. And, and how do you, uh, how do you, do, and, and what we're after, we, we often call this like, Trying to find a what's called a multi-purpose model, a model that mm-hmm. can explain many things at the same time, because that typically, if you look at some of these earlier works uh, on the modeling the visual system, there are like these 
firing rate models, which I think are sort of showing some things like yeah, whatever it's like this constant, constant invariance and, and like responses to visual stimuli with the contrast invariance, I mean. So, so there are certainly things, but they typically can only explain one thing at the time, but they're still right. useful to explain that thing. And if you try it on someone and something else, whatever, orientation selectivity or direction selectivity, it doesn't work, right? And that's, it's not surprising, right? Because it's, uh, it's, it, you need a, probably a complex model if you want to have this multi-purpose model. And uh, that say, if you had like a model of the mouse visual cortex, that should be able to reproduce uh, I mean, within some accuracy, responses to different visual stimuli, and also maybe different brain states, like the the, the mouse is like uh, active or or resting, mm -hmm. and uh, and and so that would be sort of like a multi-purpose uh, multi-purpose model, and that that sort of is I mean, yeah, and so then then of course then there's also a question: what you do with what what, what kind of model are you after? Are you going to actually the, the data from the Allen Institute they have? Not only a, a beautiful model, they also have this beautiful electrophysiological and opto, optophysiological data. So they have data from 50 mice. And when you look at them, even in the visual system, if you look at the, like the spike patterns and, and also like the, what do you call local field potential, these other things, they are quite different from mouse to mouse. Mm. Uh, so they, and, and uh, probably also vary of, yeah, I mean, it's, there's all kind of variability. So you have to think about, do I want to make, make a model for an average mouse or, or some right. kind of individual mouse or what are you really? So there's all these other kinds of issues. But say if you have this, this sort of like multi-purpose detailed model that is able to predict, uh, predict all these, um, uh, uh, all, all these different experimental observation for the particular mouse. That would certainly not be the end of the project. Some people say that's just as complicated as a, as a real mouse almost. And that's true. But then mm -hmm. you have this perfect, I guess, what's called a white box, a white mouse. No, well, that's probably not the, but anyway, oh, yes. a, a network <laughs> that, yeah, whatever. So they call about the black box and the white box, yeah. right? So yeah. this would like be analogous yeah. to a, yeah, a white box, white box mouse where, where you can actually do all <laughs> kinds of experiments, right? So you mm -hmm. can sort of then start looking for principles. And so it, then that will be a very nice starting point, I think, for making more uh, model, simplified models at, at, uh, at, at different sort of coarse grain levels. I, I mentioned in this, uh, I think we mentioned in this paper in, in Neuron uh, about the scientific case for brain simulations that you can sort of maybe then in addition to having this biophysically detailed model, and well, network, biophysical detailed network model, you can also have maybe network models of point neurons, uh, like integrated fire type neurons, and also then maybe in terms of like firing rates or population firing rates. And mm -hmm. you would like these to be sort of linked together in a systematic way so that you can, in, under some approximations, uh, be able to sort of derive the model at the more coarse grained level from the, from the lower level, right? So, so, so it's the starting point in some, so it's not the end point. So, and then be able to extract some principles from comparing the, the different granularity uh, models. Mm. And that Which would, of course, be... Yeah? Go ahead, uh, I'm thinking... Yeah, sorry. So, no, I, because I mean, I mean uh, there's all this... If you think of all the models that have come about, a good suggestion for, like, principles for how the brain works. You have, like, the, well, predictive coding and... and thousand brains theory and like this inside out perspective of, of Bushaki. Mm -hmm. It's all, all interesting, right? And, uh, and, but it's, some of them have been around for a long time. 
And it's just diff very difficult to find out <laughs> which of those, if any, is correct, right? So or all. <laughs> so <laughs> all, maybe. <laughs> exactly. Maybe there's a de but anyway, de degeneracy so then, there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but then at least if you could then, someone who believes in one of these sort of try to make actually a model based on these, because we know quite a bit about the, about sort of how to make, uh, well, I mean, we know quite a bit about the structure of the mouse or, or the visual cortex, right? In terms of the neurons and that they, they are connected. We don't know the, how strong these connections are. And so we certainly don't know all the parameters and we have, don't, obviously we don't know this plasticity rules either. But nevertheless, there are some constraints, right? So, so if there's one of these IDs that easily can sort of be accommodated with this structure, uh, that adds the credence of that ID. And, uh, and if there's another ID, which is much more difficult to, to sort of to, to, to fit with this, what we know about the structure and these type of models, then it's sort of like less, less credence. So, so that would be, uh, certainly a, a way to sort of to, yeah. To, to, to also get hopefully closer to these principles. Well, so, but you view these models not as hypotheses, but as tools, right? I, I don't know if you want to just comment about that, because I, I think yeah, some of the criticism is, is based on that notion, like, well, what are they actually, what will these models be testing? You know, like, what, what's the mm -hmm. question, <laughs> right? Yeah. But, that, but the whole point, yeah. I suppose, not to put words in your mouth, is that mm -hmm. the question, it, they're question agnostic tools. Mm, yeah, exactly. So that's how I think about it. Say if you have this, 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 you, you're out there. That's my, I, I like to hike in the mountains like many Norwegians do. And say if I get an idea, oh, I believe this M channel is very important in to, to get the hippocampal circuit to function. And I do get that out hiking. And then I yeah. get back to my little cabin and then sort of do something with the M thing and get the M channel and then simulate it down on some supercomputer in whatever Lugano or whatever, right? So that you can test that. Oh, what a consequence of that. So that's how I, it, it's a tool for, for testing hypothesis. It's not a hypothesis in itself. And, and I think it, I mean, my background before I came into neuroscience was in, in solid state physics where I worked with like materials. Mm -hmm. And, and there we have, we know how to, in some sense, the, we have the fundamental principle for, for solving materials. We, we just have to put all these atoms into sort of like the grid or like the whatever yeah, the like the structure that we know is there and the lattice structure and then we have to solve the schrodinger equation this quantum mechanical equation for the electrons and that's a very complicated equation to solve but nevertheless we know that if you're able to solve it then then sort of we, we that, that sort of gives you the it's a close approximation of the truth so that's uh, but and that's the same Thing that well that's very useful but it's not the end of the story you don't really understand you you need additional simpler te theories to understand particular at the moment particular phenomena like for example superconductivity some materials can conduct electricity without any resistance or and that some some materials are are semiconductors others are metals and so on mm. so you need also these other like what a coarse grain theories and and but um, I think it's it's a combination of these detailed models and these simple models that really gives sort of like a because the detailed models are maybe are needed to maybe make sure to make contact with experiments hmm. and uh, but they are not alone not sufficient alone to give you that 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 insight. Okay, well maybe just coming back to uh, the models that you work with. So one of the 
goals. And I guess the main goal is for the model to predict all these various types of signals, like I was mentioning earlier. And I, I guess you started off with uh, wanting to predict local field potentials uh, because, well, I, I guess to give it away, you found that a model that predicts the spiking activity uh, of a network doesn't necessarily predict the local field potentials of the network. So uh, talk about that and, and why it's important, you think, to you know come up with these mm -hmm. equations, like you were saying in solid state physics, uh, to mm. make predictions about the neural measurement signals that we yeah. uh, measure. Mm. I think so. I mean, if you look at the at the at the systems neuroscience, right? All all the insights we have from studying systems has been from measuring spikes, the accelerator signatures of of action potentials. I, I threw my I generally threw my local field <laughs> potentials away. Yeah, exactly. And I think yeah. there was also like I guess historically there were two reasons. I mean, you couldn't store them all, so because you didn't have cheap hard drives and stuff. But maybe that's not the problem problem now. But obviously, there was like a, in some sense, we were a little bit blissed in neuroscience that the spikes are so easy to interpret, mm -hmm. right? You know that they are from action potentials of neurons in the neighborhood. Uh, and, and, and so that's why this is typically, typically what you measure and analyze, right? But, and but this all, you, is you at know, the heart of it. Yeah. You've made the point also, oh. though, though, we're, we're still not confident that we understand the quote unquote code of spikes, whether it no. matters their, the timing between them, the firing rate, mm -hmm. the overall firing rate, et cetera. So we're not uh, that comfortable even with spikes. No. no, but but I guess we do believe that if I knew all the spikes in the brain of an animal, then we have sort of, we have all we need to understand the, in principle the information flow or if you're just very clever and figure things out yeah so that i think is also also true and uh, so and and if you sort of look just for the history of i mean of spikes right with was its receptive fields that was sort of like the jubilee diesel and 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 obviously told us a lot about neural representations and now we have uh, with these manifolds uh, whatever these neural manifolds which is mm -hmm. also obviously a, a nice way to look at this which also tells us uh, tells us things uh, but but from the point of view of falsifying models say if you have if you measure spikes and lfps local field potentials just to make sure that i mean the local field potentials yeah in the cortex is measured from the same electrode it's just a low frequency part so maybe the the, the part below a few hundred hertz and then uh, and then the spikes are actually extracted from the the high frequency part above a few hundred hertz so it's the same same electrode. It's yeah. just that this it's like a different aspect of the signal. And, and, then, uh, and the, lo the, the local yeah. field potential, just to carry on with what you were doing, which I, I should do more often to describe what we're actually talking about, the local field potential has traditionally been thought to measure the uh, synaptic input to the neurons mm. uh, and, mm. and a broader scope than, than of course, a spike, uh, which is the output mm. of a neuron. Mm, exactly. And I think that is still true in many situations. Uh, that's true. We're actually writing a book now on the electrical, what's it called? Electrical signals of the brain, oh. uh, which hopefully come out next year on, on Cambridge. Uh, so where we go through the, like the, what I call the measurement physics, the link between what the neurons or our group goes through, the, what the link between the neurons are doing and what you would measure in terms of spikes and local field potential and EEG and ECOG and also MEG. Uh, and so on. So, um, but, but it's, it's, uh, the thing, uh, so, so the thing is that with, um, 
the yeah. So the uh, the thing is that if if you the a local field potential, uh, well, e- even with the best electrodes that you have, say the neuropixel probe uh, that uh, that is like they're using at the, the Allen Institute, well, it's used all over the world now. Uh, uh, you can only measure, say, like I think if you have one of these neuropixel probes, that's a, a multi-shank, multi-electrode that has like many, many contacts. And but even and that you can sort of impale quite deep into the cortex and cover lots of mouse visual cortex and, and well, mouse brain altogether. You can only measure about 70, 80 neurons spikes from 70, 80 neurons at a time from each each of these shanks. You say only. So if but- you want to. Back back in the day when you could only measure one, it's it's yeah. much you know much more enticing. Yeah, that's that's true. So it's uh, so it's only so it's only compared if you if you want to use this this data to constrain a network model. So then it's then it's uh, so then then yeah. So that's sort of the key thing that if you want to constrain a network model, say if you have this model with many, well, thousands or tens of thousands or. Hundreds of thousands of well, a few tens of thousands, hundred thousand uh, neurons mimicking a piece of of, of visual cortex. It's uh, certainly the spiking data are important, but they are quite erratic and, and stochastic. So it's it's a lot of variations of that model that will be compatible with like uh, all the experiments that you have on spikes. And that's where you come in with if you can at the, if the same model can predict not only spikes but also other things that the local field potential. Then it's more you put more constraints on, so that is sort of the the why like one of the reasons I'm very interested in LA local field potential and also ECOG and EEG that to be able to predict all these different measures from the same physical model. So it's such sort of yeah. So that is does, all does, the, 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 the what, mm. does that have a touch point with um, thinking in terms of one mouse versus average mouse that LFP signals essentially would also get us closer to the average mouse yes i think that's that's certainly also true yes and i think also if you just look at a, a single mouse uh a one trial versus another trial for single for the same yeah. mouse yeah right. so it's everything is just more or less varied because it's what what is you said that the lfp is sort of reflects the synaptic inputs to neurons and and these synaptic inputs of course comes from presynaptic spikes so in some yeah. sense, the local field potential is sort of like some kind of average, weighted average of spikes, just a different kind of weighted average. So in some sense, it, it captures, captures a lot of the spiking going in, going on in the network in an indirect way. So right. it's, uh, it's, so it's, it's sort of like some sense there. So that's, and, and there, there's the thing. If you want to compute the local field potential, say, the computable, what does the contribution to the local field potential uh, from a neuron that gets a synaptic input, say, at the apical dendrite? What does it look like? If, if you want to model that, you, you cannot use a point neuron model because a point neuron model doesn't have, doesn't generate an extracellular potential. And it turns out that the, this contribution to the local field potential, that depends on the morphology and where the synapses are. And, and then you need to use these biophysical detailed models. And I, actually, if you want to do this measurement physics properly, that's not only for the electric measures, like uh, spike, LFP, EEG, ECOG, or the magnetic measures, particularly MEG, but also for the optical measure, like the response to voltage sensitive dye imaging and, 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 and so on. That very much depends on then you need this biophysically detailed 
models. So to make this proper measurement physics link, then you need this, this biophysically detailed models. Even if you, but there are, even if you sort of maybe can get away with simpler models to get an idea about, uh, about like how the information flows in the network. If you want to sort of to translate it into the things you measure, you need to go, go via this, uh, these sort of like biophysically detailed models. And, and so that's something that we have worked quite a bit on doing this kind of making this practical tricks for, for making that possible. So, so that you can sort of compute EEG contributions from a network model, even of, of point neurons or even uh, firing rate, uh, firing rate models. So it's, it's sort of this more mundane thing of, of doing the measurement physics. I sometimes compare it to the, to this, I mean, the discovery of the, the, the Higgs boson in, in CERN, Switzerland, mm-hmm. because there you had, if you look at the people at CERN, uh, they, they had maybe like 20, 30 people, I don't know, who worked on why there should be a Higgs boson in the first place. Right, mm-hmm. that has to do with the standard theory quarks and the standard theory of of particle physics. But then it's like okay, so but the, most of the people worked on how can I how can we measure this Higgs boson? Right, it's not like you can sort of just look at these traces and say, oh, there's a Higgs boson. You have to simulate the whole experiment. <coughs> you have to do the measurement physics, and that's so it's just like a separate thing. And that's sort of this measurement physics has been sort of I think underdeveloped in in. Uh, in computational neuroscience. Most mm. people have, uh, have worked on sort of this information processing and seeing how spikes generate new spikes and so on, which I understand because this is sort of the most interesting thing. But if you don't do this measurement physics correctly, then it's, then you're going to make incorrect, incorrect sort of like comparisons with, with experiments. So there's many examples of, of people who haven't sort of, I mean, papers who are sort of not very valuable uh, when they're compared with experiments because they've forgotten this sort of basic or they haven't done the measurement physics thing. So that's one of the reasons we, uh, well, one of the reasons we, um, uh, well, do this, this, this sort of like model the, the potentials. There's also this other thing that, I mean, uh, uh, people obviously measure local field potential and ECOG and EEG. And what do they do with them? Well, typically they do statistical analysis of some sort, right? And then try to interpret this sort of this, this data in terms of some kind of underlying neural activity. And how do you, how do you test this data analysis methods? I think it's always a, a good, like a sane approach. If you can make some <laughs> good benchmarking data where you know the ground truth. And, and if you have sort of a, uh, <coughs> have sort of like a test circuit, uh, we'd say like a piece of mouse visual cortex, even if it's not, I mean, fine-tuned to 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 uh, to correspond to one particular mouse. In, th- in that sense, not very realistic. It's still probably good enough to test uh, a method for, for example, what's called current source density analysis, uh, which which doesn't which would work for also unrealistic models or unrealistic mm. mice. It does depend on. Uh, so so I think depend on sort of being biologically accurate. So I think that's a very important, and we have used that actually to test sort of different. We have also developed some new methods for current source density analysis back in the past, and they were tested on, on, on bench model based benchmarking data. And I think that's, and this is also important for developing automatic spike sorters. I guess you were sort of uh, in your, yeah. I don't want to talk about days, it. You had to do, yeah, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of, exactly. So this is sort of, uh, I, I mean, we are in, I'm in Oslo at this, uh, called the Center for Integrated, well, Simpla Integrated, Center for Integrated Neuroplasticity. So we have modelers and experimentalists sitting, uh, 
side by side. So we also look at these these people well doing spike sorting, right? And all the oh. issues related to that. And it's like, uh, so that's extremely, yeah. So so having automated, validated spike sorting methods that you can trust that'd be very useful. I do the field, right? So yeah. and I think there with uh, then you need ground truth data. I mean, you could get it two ways. If you have dual recordings, say like measure things, measure spikes and maybe optical responses to two photon calcium imaging or something. But, but, uh, that's sort of quite hard to get by and, 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 and to at least get a lot of this kind of data. But with model based data, I think the, the, the modeling of these extracellular signals are quite, quite well established. So I, I, I sort of, uh, so, so I think it's, it's, uh, the modeling formalism you can, you can trust. Yeah, the, the spike sorting thing, I'll just um, make one further comment on that. That has become more important with these high-density multi-electrode recording um, oh. techniques because back in the old day uh, when I started, you, you could, you know, with a, a single electrode, you could, everything drifts while you're recording. So you could kind of chase that neural signal and be confident that you're still recording the same neuron. But you really, mm. you can't you can't do that with these multi-electrode uh, systems and you know there's questions about you, you you impale the cortex right or or put it you know down into the brain and then mm. this is talking a little shop but and then you wait and you know you go go get a coffee because you know that it's going to drift uh, over time uh -huh. and so you want it to be uh -huh. as stable as possible but it's never uh -huh. completely stable so there are different mm -hmm. you know ideas about how long to wait and so on uh -huh. so anyway but that, you were yeah, working the, with with monkeys right Mon monkeys yeah yeah, but they so were, they were head fixed, yeah. and you know, so yeah. they they weren't freely behaving in that sense. Yeah. But still, still, there's there's drift. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, anyway, yeah. just to say. Actually, note. about this, the the usefulness for for modeling signals. I think your uh, you, you had a nice podcast with your old postdoc advisor Jeffrey Shaw. Oh right? yeah, yeah. He was he was my advisor yeah. when I was yeah I did a postdoc yeah. with him. So he referred to this this work with our uh, Jorge Riera. And others down in East yeah, Florida. Yeah, they, they work so they on that. Using, yeah, yeah. So I was. Uh, so I know this. So they are doing some very nice work using actually some of our tools. So, is, uh, I so was wondering about of, that. So, yeah. yeah. So exactly. So this is uh, Jorge is a great guy, and uh, I, well, Jeffrey also. I'm quite sure. I just haven't met him in person. Uh, but um, but Jorge was well. He's been visiting a few times. So, so this is. It's not so. This co I mean, computation neuroscience community is is sort of not so big compared to the neuroscience community right and within the computational neuroscience com community there's like this the people who model signals are <laughs> the minority of the minority fraction so yeah. like uh, Jorge Riera is, 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 is one of them right but uh, more and more people are I think well that's what we always say when you sort of want to promote your <laughs> your approach or tell about your approach but I think more and more people are, are sort of if you want to go beyond this sort of I would say like anecdotal understanding of networks. I think there's been some very beautiful uh, model studies of, of learning about how uh, principles for how, for how networks may operate, how do you get the dynamics? Maybe particularly this one example is this balanced excitation inhibition ID, mm -hmm. which was beautifully demonstrated uh, like you know, 20, 25 years ago in, in a more generic network, like simple right. neurons. And, and, and we have learned a lot from those. But uh, if you want to make sort of not what is like these generic studies, go beyond that and mo make models for particular particular systems, particular like pieces of cortex or or particular systems, then you have to sort of look into. Well, then you have to sort of do this this measurement physics more properly. Uh, 
even though this, I think, uh, obviously you mentioned Eve Martyr and uh, the work of, uh, well, her work, obviously, you know, or the work in her group on, on this, uh, this those, what is stomatogastric ganglion. Yeah, it's certainly I, very I beautiful and it's as, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, has been, it's very important and has obviously illustrated the, the many of the same issues that we have to have to address in uh, in in competition in in when you're dealing with cortex i would say though that one i think life if we get stronger computers say like if we get this like the e-brains there's a, like the infrastructure following the human brain project so that you can sort of run decently large network models and run them for a long time then we can start also exploring uh, like plasticity rules because uh, actually coming out from Eve Martyr's lab, there are this sort of beautiful work on, on, on homeostasis. Why does sort of a, uh, why does a layer five neuron in the cortex know that it's a layer five neuron? What, what happens? And, and, and it turns out, of course, and it was like also beautiful work. I remember why one of our postdocs, Tim, Tim O'Leary, I think he's now at Cambridge, hmm. where this showed how sort of you can sort of, instead of fitting channel densities for in, in neural models, you can sort of essentially just let them tune themselves using this essentially like plasticity rules mm. based on the intercellular calcium concentration. And then suddenly you have changed the parameter fitting from channel densities to, to essentially fitting these, these learning, these plasticity rules. So it might get much simpler. And it's the same thing with, uh, there was also this beautiful work from the group of uh, Wolfram Gessner. And that was like 10 years ago where they showed how you could get to this balanced state. Uh, without having to fine tune and and <coughs> to to get these right parameters, you could have this particular synaptic plasticity rule. I think it was an inhibitor of synaptic plasticity, which let the network tune itself. So I think it's it's like that's closer to what the real brain does. I'm quite sure, and it will but, make life easier if we just are able to run the models longer, so that we can use this use this. Well, hmm. So so you make these uh you know complicated high parameter models and i know you you make them at different you know levels of abstraction as well and then you can compare between them but how long are we talking uh are do do you run your simulations so it's not long enough for a, a sort of a plasticity allowance no so uh so typically they are uh, run for a few few seconds of, of biological time uh even though we haven't really pushed that and and so far we haven't looked. I think we can sort of add short-term plasticity. Uh, like uh, that, that is something we could add to the model, and that could maybe give, yeah, add, add, well, add, add something to it. But these sort of more, this homostatic plasticity and and synaptic, like long-term, like uh, long-term synaptic plasticity, it's not something that we can we can do. And and they are, obviously, I think, hopefully, that will make our life easier when the. In the future, we can actually explore these things in the in in models and and let. I think it's going to make the parameter fitting problem. But you could um, potentially do that right now. So a lot of what you do is uh, model multi-compartment neurons, where where you're breaking mm -hmm. down the neural neural structure into like lots and lots of different sections. But you also test mm -hmm. uh, dual compartment, right? Where you have a, an apical. Mm -hmm area and a basal soma area yes, well, and yeah. and two um, compartment we call it yeah. two mm -hmm. compartment yeah um yeah. Mm -hmm. you could potentially already i mean but, but they're not as computationally costly to run right so you could potentially mm -hmm. go down that avenue right now with those 
right? Exactly. So, so actually, when it comes to this, uh, this, this Allen mouse visual cortex model, they have like two versions. One oh. with the biophysically detailed models in multi-compartment and, and, and one with point neurons. And, uh, we are actually using, using both. And actually, when it comes, we have a lot of, well, master students working on this model here and they, very typically use this simpler point neuron version simply because then you can run it on like normal computers yeah. and you yeah. can sort of get feedback in. And I think it's true when it comes to synaptic plasticity and, and it's like effect of, of spiking, uh, then, uh, and, and sort of how uh, self-tuning of these connection parameters, then I think sort of actually exploring point neuron networks first is probably a right avenue. And, and people are, are doing that. I don't really, I don't have a, Full, I don't follow that feel as closely as I should, but certainly that's, uh, that's important work there. And I, I, I think that's true. So you just have to be practical about it. And, and, uh, but at the end of the day, you would like these different approximation schemes to be internally connected so that you don't just invent something <laughs> that uh, on a coarse grain level that could never happen for a, a real neuron, right? So it has to yeah. be some kind of, uh, consistency mm. but but even the multi-compartment neurons that's a decision to make uh of how many compartments you know because you're yeah. still it's not biophysically equivalent <laughs> to a real neuron no. so you know how does that decision no. get made for instance i think there typically the standard way is that you 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 choose the you divide it up into these small sections which are compartments mm -hmm. and and the key thing is that the, the membrane potential within each compartment should be the same, meaning so there shouldn't be a potential difference within the within the compartment, uh, which is sort of uh, larger than some kind of fraction of it. So that that's how we set it. So the some said the compartment should be equipotential, as we say. But then how, so how do you have decide a systematic how, way? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No. So how? So what was the question? How how do we decide the size of the compartment or? Yeah, how many? How many? How do you decide how many compartments? I mean, I know sometimes yeah. you just kind of plug in, like with the Allen Institute model, you use other people's mm. models also, and sometimes mm. alter them, uh, you know, mm. changing parameters. But mm. I think, I think, I think in Neuron, what they often do, what Neuron is this simulation tool that is used uh, still, sort of like I guess the most used simulation tool where you can import these reconstructed morphologies of neurons into the model and then. Mm it sort of compartmentalizes it itself. And then you have this, uh, what's called, a, you have this measure called the electrotonic length. How how fast does the potential, if you have this little piece of a cable, then you have this, what's called electrotonic uh, length, which tells you how fast does the potential decay from one end of the cable to the other. And that depends on the, on the, on the diameter and, and circum, yeah, like these things yeah. and their resistivity and so on. And if you say that, well, it shouldn't decay more than maximally say 1%. And that also depends on frequency. So you have some criteria like this that you can use to sort of to say, but, but again, what you typically do, uh, well, what you could do if you're worried about this, you can sort of change it and make a more stringent criterion and see if the results you're interested in change. Right. Right. So, yeah. so that's like, uh, so, so that's sort of like, uh, yeah. So there are like these approaches to at least do the, to like have some sanity tests in the modeling on the modeling itself. All right. So, uh, in terms of you know what you've been able to accomplish, uh, you've been at this mm -hmm. for quite some time, and I, I mentioned earlier that, and I think this is correct that you started with um, trying to essentially predict LFPs and, and spiking, but LFPs was mm -hmm. the, uh, local field potentials was the problem. 
Uh, and I know that you, you are continuing to, um, you know, move into EEG signals, which has not been as much of a problem as the LFP was originally, if I understand correctly, uh, and other types of signals. So, you know, what, um, you know, what, what lessons have we learned or have you learned so far about the importance of being able to predict these signals? Yeah. So I would say what we have done, I mean, we have worked on these signals for like, I guess, 15 years or something. And, and most of them was sort of to just sort of to look like what are called generic studies. So if you have a population of, of, of pyramidal neurons that receives a synaptic input, how, what, what really determines how strong the local field potential measured inside this population would be? I mean, and morphology is important, but what is also found is that it's really the distribution of synaptic inputs. I mean, when it's like mm-hmm. it's homogeneously distributed, you get a very s- small LFP, even though the spiking resulting from this might be very high. Right. But it's just that you, you need this like asymmetry or unbalance in the input. Sort of to, uh, and, and then another thing we found out is that, or we explored systematically, I think people have sort of known this before, but I think we have done it, sort of taking it to a quantitative level and, and the effects of correlations, how correlated the synaptic inputs are. So that really determines a lot. So, so say if you have a, so we had one, one paper that came out, I guess, 10 years ago or something where we looked at uh, how, how local the local field potential is. So if you, if you put down an electrode, you know that, well, if, if, if you measure a spike or spikes, you know that they typically come from within 100 micrometers from the tip of the electrode. But what about the local field potential? And then experiments have sort of had very different estimates on that all the right. way from like a few hundred micrometers to centimeters. And what we found by exploring it in a model is that this could be that this, this what we call the spatial reach uh, very much depends on how correlated the inputs that the correlated to the correlated the, the like the, the 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 different well the signals that to the neurons that sets up this LFP. So it's a little bit like if you have a a microphone hanging over a football stadium, right? And then it's uh, if there's like <laughs> this like small talk, and nothing is happening, just boring. Then it's you don't hear it very well. But if if somebody scores a touchdown, right, you get this sort of some sense correlated cheer, and then you can hear it from outside the stadium, right? So it's a, it's a little bit the same the same kind of idea. If you have like this correlated neurons that singing in in synchrony, then you get a strong LFP. So anyway, so these are the kinds of studies that we have, have investigated, and, and and also, for example, if you measure an LFP, could it is it necessarily due to neurons around you around the electrode, mm. or could it be this very loud neighboring population? And we have explored this quantitatively and, and, and learned, I think, a lot about this, how these, um, uh, uh, how these sort of like, you know, what really determines that, that competition. Uh, and then we have looked at sort of other aspect effect of, of active dendritic conductances, IH, for example, that you can, can they, how, how will they affect things? So we have done studies like that. And now also, as I said, focus on EEG, uh, because I mean, the traditional way to analyze, one, one traditional way of analyzing EEG signals is to, uh, to, to try to do sort of like, uh, identify estimate sources where there's like dipole sources. And that's like an ill posed problem and, and very hard, but you can put the right. constraints. So there's a lot of, of work that has gone into this. 
But and what we have done is, or to add to this, is that we now can actually compute the current. If you have a particular neuron population that gets a synaptic input at a certain place, we can compute the current dipole moments. So we can actually make that connection between the current dipole moment and what's actually going on into the, in in the circuit. So that sort of is is sort of what we have worked a lot on this. What's called the the forward modeling of of electrical. Uh, electrical signals. So I would say most of the work we have done has been on sort of finding these principles. What makes a large LFP? When is it large? When is it small? Uh, and um, and also we have worked on, on making tests, like ways to make test data for spark sorting algorithms, sort of like different kinds of application of, of forward modeling, testing data analysis methods and so on. But now we are trying to, to uh, I would say like the last couple of years in collaboration with the Allen Institute, we're trying to use this to, to constrain and, and, and work towards this multi-purpose version of this mouse visual cortex model. And so that is something we had actually a couple of, of workshops that we have organized together with the, the Allen Institute, Anton Akipov. So if people are interested, they can look it up on the net and find some, uh, I mean, they are like they're out on YouTube, this, this thing. So, so it's this, this goal of trying to, trying to make this multi-purpose model. And one important thing is that it's, well, there's a lot of parameters, right? Obviously in this, uh, <laughs> and you can think in these models and you say, well, with five parameters, you can fit an elephant and right with six, you can make it blink or whatever. But that is for <laughs> statistical models, right? When you just fit it to a mathematical function, fitting a curve to a mathematical function. But, but, but if you have this mechanistic models, it's like the physics type and the type of network models, and, and finding combination of connectivity or well, connection parameters and, and so on that sort of makes the LFP look right is very hard. It's not like it's easy at all. So it's not like it's like many models that at least at the, at the present stage, the hard, the, the, the challenge is to find one model that actually is quite close to experiments. It's not that we have a, if probably if we found one such model, we can sort of expand and find where it sort of is find this parameter set but at the it's not like it's many models it's very easy to find a model that fits the experimental data because it's a mechanistic model it's not a statistical model well so you've tested models with like a handful of neurons and you know you're scaling up how how much of a problem is that aspect of it of trying to find the right parameters for let's say an lfp signal or something like that as you scale yeah. up and then and then what's your outlook on scaling these simulations up yeah, in terms of one thing, the, the LFP is um, is is also it's a coarse grained signal, right? So so yeah. I think if you if you right. so it's not like you're moving one neuron around a little bit or changing a little. It, it sort of takes the, it's sort of the roar of the crowd in some sense, yep. right? Yep. So and we haven't uh, so so we have actually now. Uh, I mean, what we have done in that's the last uh, paper that is just well coming out in. It's on out on BioArchive coming out in plus. It's out on actually it's out in plus computational biology, where I looked at the trick for being able to, right. if you have uh, even a firing rate model, uh, when you model say populations and say in a cortex and then like a, I don't know, laminarly organized set of populations, uh, and and being able to convert that into, to um. And convert that into LFPs using a sort of like some, some tricks, what we call the kernel trick, so that we're able to actually to, to compute these signals, uh, without 
we, because we want to do it brute force, it's it's actually a, it, it's actually an, a quite additional. Well, I mean, it's a, it's really is an additional load. So if you want to combine it with with say firing rate models of of uh, like you know, like the neural field models, neural mass models, then you need to do some kind of trick to compute say the EEG contributions. And when you want to make a neural field model for the whole brain predict uh, EEG signals, then you need some kind of trick, and that is something we have have worked on. So the, so the limitation. One one important thing is that finding a say finding a mouse visual cortex model, tuning the parameters so that it becomes multi-purpose is very hard. Hmm. Uh, so that's going to keep us busy. It's it's not like an either or thing either. I mean, we're going to give, hopefully get closer, more and more. So more and more multi-purpose, and 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 uh, we don't we don't really know how fast the progress will be, and so on. But that's a hard thing. If you have a model, to com- compute the, 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 this LFP and EEG and so on, that's very easy. The measurement physics is much easier than the, some sense, the network physics. If you see what oh. I'm saying. So it's uh, the limitation is actually being able to make. Well, both make lar- larger network models covering maybe cortical areas and actually whole whole cortices, and and making it uh, make it with sensible parameters so that actually it's it can actually predict sort of similar predict some of the things that uh, of the experiments. That's sort of the hard thing, and and uh, but take going from that model to the the EEG signals or the other signals is not not so hard. And the first, the first of, of going, say, going towards the human brain, it's, it's, uh, I mean, obviously there's a, not only con- the problem of, of knowing enough about the, the neurons and, and particularly the connections, but it's also then a matter of, 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 of scaling up and being able to, to run large enough network models that they sort of, yeah, makes, makes sense that their network behavior is sort of like resembles what you see in, experience of course also in humans you have you have much less data because because right. you only have yeah you don't have it's like non like essentially just eeg and and mg right which are non-invasive yeah so um but i think that maybe the i think what we maybe it's it's a little bit like if you sort of look at the i mean like deep networks again convolution networks the neuron dynamics that is typically assumed right you have like this lower linear Linear threshold is mm-hmm. really network. So, so the neurons are sort of fixed and in, and you tune the some sort of synaptic weights. And I think with this, say with the mouse visual cortex, where they, they mapped out during this patch electro, this automated way to find quite good neural models. I think the, 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 the weak, weakest link now is finding the synaptic connections. I think we're better off making, make some kind of automated procedure for getting mm-hmm. at least decent neural models. So I think in, in our project, we often start with taking the neural models for, for granted, at least as a starting point, and then we had to deal with the synaptic connection weights. So, okay. So I just want to um, understand and reiterate, the, and it, I may be mm-hmm. repeating what you've said earlier, but you know, with something like predicting an LFP signal or um, figuring out how, how widespread from how widespread you're you're recording in an LFP, the goal is not necessarily to understand the meaning of the LFP, 
but just to be able to get the models right so that when you are testing these against experimental data, you know you have a, a well-constrained and built model, right? So it's it's not yeah, exactly. specific to interpretation of the signals you're recording. It is it is specific to the model as a, a tool. That's true. Yeah. So it's it's uh, so it's yeah. It, it's a way exactly. That's true. So it's it's a way to to predict. Given that you have your model, if you believe in your model, if that's your hypothesis, then what are the consequences in terms of what the LFP should look like? Right. And because I don't think there's this question whether local field potential has sort of actually <laughs> feeds back to and modulates the dynamics. It could be, I don't know, whether it's not quite clear how whether that is important in practice, but I, I look at LFP sort of like, uh, actually talked about the Terry Sanofsky and that, that, which I made laugh. He called LFP the exhaust fumes of the brain, uh, which is some some sense true. It's sort of so. It's more about what can you learn from the exhaust fumes, since if that's right. the only thing you measure. So it's I think that that's true. So if it's like a proxy for the spikes. So um, I, I mean, I yeah. So just to stick on LFPs for a moment. Um, uh, neural oscillations kind of waxes and wanes as a focus of uh, neuroscience. Like you mentioned, Bujaki, he's studied oscillations a lot. Uh, is that something that uh, is of interest to you to um, recapitulate oscillatory dynamics also? For me, it's one of the, if you, one of the features that, that a successful model should sort of say if you had a had a model for the hippocampal formation and uh, mm -hmm. and so on and, and where obviously oscillations are are prominent then a successful biophysical based well model of that should reproduce the the oscillations uh, so for me it's it's another it's sort of like whether it's oscillations or something else that's yeah, yeah that's uh, so yeah so it's it's uh, so that doesn't really change in terms of the the modeling even though it's uh, what we've shown, I mean, but it's important to, we, for example, found that we have like this, uh, this res in, in for some of these hippocampal neurons, you have these resonances, I think, that you can sort of get the largest, you get, how is it? I mean, you can get the typical, sort of that largest LFP is at some, I think it's theta frequency or something like 8 hertz or something like that. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, so we saw that we get actually, in principle, that could be, an artifact of how the, in some sense, the how how the IH is distributed. It's just like it, it's so the mm. IH messes up the or changes the LFP. So mm. it just illustrates that you have to be uh, when you see an oscillation. It doesn't necessarily in an LFP. It doesn't mean that the firing rate necessarily is oscillating at the same time. Certainly, not the, you don't get the weighting right at least. So you have to sort of to you have to do the measurement physics. Right, so that's why it's really important, I think, to have this 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 modeling framework, uh, sort of as like a way to test your hypothesis. When you have an idea that, uh, well, test whether it's like a firing rate thing versus a, like another thing that sort of sets up the oscillation, because it's. I mean, we have worked on this cable equation and, and neuron models and networks for a long time, and we have really spent a lot of time on this in our group. And we are still surprised by the predictions from the cable huh. And sometimes you have these intuitions that, oh, then there should be a bump here. And then you do a simulation and then, no, it isn't. And no. then, <laughs> then they go back and, and figure out why it isn't there maybe. But it's, it's difficult to have intuition about how the signal should be 
it's it's sort of a, it's all this what are called folk physics. It's sort of where you uh, where people sort of they all like these rules of thumb, which mm-hmm. are uh, sometimes which should be tested, and they sort of like it's a little bit like spread spread from father to son or on the around the campfire <laughs> in the neuroscience community. Right. <laughs> so you yeah. have to test these things, right? For example, a thing that if you sort of measure strong local field potential in layer four in the in cortex it doesn't mean that the neuron that generates that that layer lfp has a soma in layer four so you don't right. have this this locality that you have for spikes so mm-hmm. these are stills you see sometimes meet this still so it's just that it's uh some of these things have to be 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 corrected so i think it just make can make the the field more quantitative and, and precise and help us uh, when we sort of do this kind of measurement physics exercises to get sort of a to, 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 to at least not fail on that because it's so many other other things which are much are inherently difficult <laughs> you mentioned um the you know recent kind of explosion in focusing on low dimensional manifolds and the dynamics of populations of neurons i mean are the simulations that you do not long enough to uh connect with that or uh how do you how do you see how do you see that uh, in general? And then do you think about that in terms of your own models and simulations? Yeah. No, I think it's, uh, I mean, if you, if you think of, say, if you want to, f- to, to, to make this mouse visual cortex model, right? So you mm-hmm. have this, this, this model with some hundred thousands of neurons. And say, if you measure in, in animals, that you, then you can measure these volume measure receptive fields and, and selectivity and so on. And you can also measure this neural manifolds and experimental data. And then that's one thing that your model can be compared with, right? It's another sort of things that you compare, that's based on spikes. So it's another sort of like uh, one, one, another thing that I go, I, I go uh, that uh, another kind of in, insight data that you can use to constrain your model. So that's, uh, so I think that's all, all these different measures that you can get from, that you can use to draw to, which you think are important is something you can use it to test your model. So then you will have sort of like this benchmarking test suit, right? If you sort of have yeah. have this yeah. this normal you should predict this. How does it well does it do on this sort of how similar is it to whatever the present experimental data? And then and then you have a little bit like they have for this what's called the brain score. Is that what they have in the DiCarlo yeah, lab? Brain right? score, I believe like, is, yeah. 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 So that is if you get some same I mean a similar thing if you have a test suit not with a single brain score with some kind of multi-objective thing and mm-hmm. and see how high dimensional uh, high dimensional test scores <laughs> you got to yeah, reduce exactly, the dimension of dimension. those also exactly yeah. but it just to be so because i think that's why i think i, I what i what i like about this overall project for one thing obviously i think it's i mean it's it will be cool to really understand a piece of cortex at the level that you understand the neuron right that will be a, a very important thing and have so many uh, um, yeah, but but I also think so many applications and uh, and ramifications. But I also think it's it's because it's really a project or a program where we can make progress because we can measure success because we compare with different kinds of exper- well, experimental data and you can compare how well you're doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the moment we are far away from. Uh, that's a, certainly room for improvement in our models. I mean, this is like, I would say early days and we only worked on this for two years and I hope that more people get interested in this. I mean, this, I think this, this experimental data set 
that they have in electrophysiology and uh, and uh, and optical physiology that they have freely available at the Allen Institute for these mice, which are sort of like the, like 50, 60 mice and they're the same age and everything is sort of as re- almost as reproducible as it can be because it's right. almost like this industry style lab. It's a fantastic opportunity for for this kind of neuroscience. So this is uh, which hasn't been there which hasn't been there before. So I think yeah. it's uh, it's really, uh, so I hope there are some uh, young eager brains in uh, whatever listening <laughs> to this, US or in Indonesia or uh, Australia or in uh, North Finland or in Norway <laughs> or whatever. Now so we can sort of, they, the, all this data is available for some sense for everyone with a laptop. And if you also get these sort of possibilities to do these large scale simulations, from all these places, it's it's an enormous pos- yeah, it's enormous opportunity for 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 neuroscience. All right, gotcha. and I would say I have, just one, one thing I have to say, yeah, because it's the reason. I mean, Hodgkin and Huxley did essentially this this made this neural model by them by themselves, and ideally, I would also like to do the same thing for a for a cortex by themselves, uh, well, for for a piece of cortex by myself or in our group. So, so the reason we have these large scale initiatives like the human brain project and others and, and is really that it's collecting all this data and also just building this infrastructure for simulating things. It's just not the, it's not the, it's not the job for a single group. And also just making this what's called, what called skeleton models, the candidate models, just putting up with some kind of plausible, <coughs> some kind of plausible starting point is it, it takes it's like many years. So it's, it's a kind of, it's a kind of approach. When you do this approach, the Hodgkin Huxley style approach to, to, to say a network in a visual cortex, you need sort of like, a, you, you need the large, large community, many people. Hmm. So it's not like this collaboration has a value in itself, even though that can be fun also, but that's not really, that's not really it. That, that's something you also um, make the case for in that 2019 neuron perspective as well. So uh, I'll point people to that also. Gautu, let's let's um. I want to switch gears and ask you one more question before we move on to some extra time for the Patreon supporters, and Good. and that's just kind of your broad thoughts about. So a lot of what we talk about on this podcast is the connection between deep learning and AI and neuroscience and cognition and brains. And I'm wondering how you view your uh, simulation-based approach with respect to uh, a a deep learning approach to understanding brains and minds and cognition. Yeah, obviously, I mean, very concretely, the, the goal of the goal of sort of our, our my approach is really to mimic a piece of the brain. It's not really mm-hmm. to at the moment, right? Uh, and hopefully then expand it to go beyond just the visual cortex to like a whole whole brain. So it has like a very different uh, different goal. Uh, on the other hand, I mean it's 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 now when you mo- if you want to sort of tune these parameters, I think I mean so everything is. Allowed in love, war, and optimization. I mean, you need if you have get some clues from uh, from AI in in sort of how starting point for making these networks say uh, so that is I uh, get some extra hints so that like the parameter mm. space you have to search is smaller, 
Right. Uh, is, yeah. So I think it's, and especially you have all this, this great brain power and of course resources going into AI. So we have, uh, uh, like a bio AI group also, uh, at, at our university. So I, which I, where I, and I collaborate with some, some, some people there, uh, also because it's, it's fun. And, um, but also because I think it's, it's, we need sort of, a I don't know. It, 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 I think in, you talked a little bit earlier on an earlier podcast about we should be more charitable mm-hmm. towards each other. And I think that's a very important thing. I think in, in, and I think we should be charitable is, is a good thing in general, but also in neuroscience of, I mean, in the, in the sort of, in this, like the goal of, and the task of trying to understand the brain, we don't have too many success stories, I would say. Right. I mean, it's right. not like clear. Uh, so I think if, if, uh, People, we should be very sort of open to other people's approaches and, and us less, unless people are doing something which are clearly unethical or, or like factually wrong. But, uh, who are, who am I to tell? I mean, I pursue this like biophysically detailed thing, trying to modeling at, at, at modeling at, as a physical system, partly because I think it's promising, but also I think because it's something I know how to do, because that's sort of what I've been trained, <laughs> right? I'm trained as a yep. physicist. You have to, yep. if I figured out that what I really should do was monkey experiments. I mean, that would be the most promising. That would be helpless, right? I could never do, never do that. <laughs> so, I'm sure we, I'm, so you, you, you can teach an old dog new tricks, but yeah. there's a limit. <laughs> yeah, there are, there are limits. So I don't know. And then you have like on the, maybe on the other extreme, you have like this or other opposite. You have this Elias Smith with uh, this, yeah. this other, what's called, uh, right? And, spawn. And I think His spawn. Should, yeah, spawn, exactly. And we should just sort of root on each other and, and, and take compare notes and see how we're doing. So we should be very, and I think AI also with the people working there trying to make connections to, to the brain. Excellent. We should just like what, uh, for example, Di Carlo is doing and, and comparing there. That's, that's exciting. So I but, think we but, should be spend less time criticizing each other's approaches and just try. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So but those, the AI models, right, are still mm. built on essentially built on uh, neuroscience ideas from very, very early on, uh, you know, like point neuron kind of ideas, right? And are highly, highly abstracted. So in that sense, are at the opposite of end of the spectrum of something like you're doing, uh, creating these simulations. And do you uh, hope and or think that uh, the simulation-based approach might actually end up teaching AI something or uh, mm. importing some principles into AI to help improve artificial intelligence because it yeah. should, in principle, flow both both ways, right? I agree. Yeah, it could be. I mean, one thing that is, if you see these very successful uh, deep learning uh, applications, they are what are called like single single purpose. They're like category image classification, right? Right. And mm. and there's you're struggling with this transfer. There, it's not multi-purpose in the sense that it can apply for many very different tasks. Uh, while the mouse visual cortex is 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 used as input for for dealing with many different tasks, yeah. So <clears throat> so maybe it's something with the neurons and maybe the especially the the temporal dynamics uh, of, of 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 real neurons, which are sort of not captured. Well, in the deep networks is not captured at all. But at I mean, all. even yeah. with uh, with these artificial networks, that is uh, crucial for to get to this multi-purpose thing. So. I think we should certainly, we should certainly, well, as we start making, well, hopefully make more progress <laughs> along these biological networks and, and we get towards this, 
multi-purpose models and i i certainly think that it should be well that could be that that is something for the ai people to look at also so gauta uh thank you for the thoughtful email which uh generated this conversation i'll i'll uh, pass this on to karina also i'm sure she'll get a kick out yeah. of me having had you on the podcast yeah. uh and and thanks for being with me today and, and sharing some of your work and and much luck moving forward yeah and well thanks a lot for being invited i really appreciate it I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon to access full versions of all the episodes and to join our Discord community. Or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, consider signing up for my online course, NeuroAI, The Quest to Explain Intelligence. Go to braininspired.co to learn more. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. You're hearing music by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you. Thank you for your support. See you next time.